morning we're kicking off a new series. We're going to be looking at the liturgy of our worship and finding that liturgy is literally rehearsing the gospel with one another as we gather together in worship. Liturgy is those items, those menu items in your bulletin. We began this morning with a welcome and announcement. And the reason that we put that at the very front end is because that's not actually worship. So we put that on the front end, and I'll often remark, now let us begin worship with a call to worship. And then from there, we have a prayer of invocation, and we have a song of praise. And those things are done very intentionally and very historically and very biblically. And so we're going to introduce you over the next uh, 12, 13 weeks to why we do what we do in worship. Why do we have liturgy? What, what purpose does it have? The greatest purpose we're going to discover for liturgy in this series is that we're able to once again to reenact and to rehearse with one another the gospel. The gospel to one another in worship. Think about uh, the movie 41st Date, where Drew Barrymore, uh, because of a car accident, found that she had amnesia to the degree that every day was a new day. She did not know who she was, quite didn't know quite who people in relationship with her, such as her brother or her dad or her boyfriend who they were. And so her boyfriend, Adam Sandler, uh, every day would have a ritual that he would go through. And she would begin to put it together. Oh yeah, I did do this. And yes, parts of the memory would come alive again. But every day he would say, I'm the one that loves you. And we're in a relationship together. And so a liturgy is rehearsing that where you tell me and I tell you and God tells all of us again, we're in relationship with one another. Sons, daughter, God is our Father, Christ is our brother, and the Holy Spirit is in us. This morning we're going to look specifically at the call to worship. We turned and faced one another this morning and, and we recited the call to worship to another congregation, to one another to call out worship from one another. And I want you to see three things about the call to worship. That, first of all, it is a call to come and to worship. Secondly, it's a call, it's a call to us to contemplate. And in that contemplation and consideration, to kneel. And then finally, Psalm 95, as a call to worship, is a call to caution, but also a call to come and rest. Without further ado, let's, let's look at the scriptures and see in verses 1 and 2 that it is a call to come and worship. And I want you to see three things. I want you to see that, first of all, God takes the initiative. 
okay? That God takes the initiative and He invites us and He invites us all to come and to worship. The very spokesperson here of, Oh, come, let us sing. Let us come. Let us make. That voice is the voice of the priest or the choir leader, the worship leader, but he's a representative of God. He is the mouthpiece, but it is God who speaks first. It is God who initiates. We read when Christ met with the Samaritan woman at the well, and they were talking about church, and they were talking about worship services, and worship styles being different. And he said, there is a God, the true God, who seeks worshipers in spirit and in truth. We have a God who seeks us out in worship. And the reason that he seeks is because we don't first love him. We don't seek him out. We seek other objects of worship. We seek and place value on other things and give our adoration, our attention, our affections to those things. But it's because God is committed to his glory, but he's also committed to your joy that he pursues the Samaritan woman. He pursues the outcast or the stranger or the sojourner. We commonly call people who worship with us that are filled with doubts and not yet believers in Christ, seekers. And that's not an insulting term, but it's not true. If you're a seeker here this morning, I want to tell you, even if you cannot put your finger on exactly how you came to be here in worship this morning, that God has drawn you here. And it should, it should begin to, to move you to think that God desires you and He's seeking you. You're in the right place. You're right where we all were. You're in the right place. And God is bringing you in to a family. God, when I, uh, the first church that Wendy and I were privileged to serve was actually two churches 10 miles apart in the mountains of North Carolina. And one was a small little rock church with a, with a bell tower called Frank Church. And one of the elders on Sunday morning, I would pull up in a Jeep, and that was, since the preacher's now on the property, he would go to the bell, and he would ring the bell, and people in the community would either walk or drive to church. The bell called them to worship. We have something more than a bell. We have a God who is seeking us out and calling us to worship. The very word, there's a Latin word for this psalm, Psalm 95, and it's the word for come, vinti, vinti, 
It's the, it's the word for come. It's, it's to say this is a psalm where God invites us with an invitation and a call to worship. God comes and he's seeking us out. And all the while, he's inviting us. Notice that language of let us, in verse 1, make a joyful noise. Verse 2, let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us. Let's do this. Again, that's a part of the battle that you're going to face. You may not like the song. Let us sing it. I invite you. Oh, I don't like it when we do that. I just cross my arms and stay seated, or I don't do that part of worship. Let us. Presbyterians don't make noise very well. But here he's saying, let us make noise. Let us, let us put aside our anxieties, our cares. Let us put aside distractions. He's inviting us. And then lastly, notice that he includes us. Do you see the language here? It's all plural. Christians are not made to worship alone. And even those in very isolated, solitary confinement or, or quarantine hospital rooms where they would be forced to worship by themselves, they're not made to worship by themselves. We're made to worship together. And as I earlier, at the very beginning of the service, said, it's important that we come not simply for the songs or simply for the sermon, that we come for the whole worship service. Because God includes all of us together in all of the worship service that we might be of mutual strength and encouragement to one another. C.S. Lewis said this about friendship. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man in to activity. What C.S. Lewis was talking about was he had two good friends. And they met at the Eagle and Child Pub at least once a week for a pint. And they were all writers, and they were all professors, and they would talk, and they had a very intimate friendship. There was J.R. Tolkien, who was known as Ronald, and there was Charles William, a tremendous poet and wit, and there was C.S. Lewis. When Charles died, he thought that he would have more of Ronald. But what he experienced was, in the absence of Charles, he had less. Because there were aspects, facets, that Charles could bring out of Ronald that C.S. Lewis could not. So he didn't have, by the absence of Charles, more of Ronald, he had less. And so it is true with us. When you're not with us in worship, we not only miss you, we miss what you bring out of us and what you contribute to us. 
We can be a rather difficult, honorary people to one another, but we need each other. The very worship we're designed for in heaven will have this aspect. We will worship together. We will be together. And in that multiplicity, and even across cultures and ethnic ethnic groups, we're going to find parts of us that are brought out or we're going to bring other parts of other people out in praise of our God. It'll be like saying, wow, did you ex- I've experienced this from God. Wow, I experienced something similar. Wow, I wish that I could experience that. Oh, but you will. So God, there's an inclusivity of worship where we're not made to worship just at the beach or in the mountains. Oh, we can seize worship in those places. And if necessary, even by ourselves in everyday private worship. But Sunday morning is a culmination of all of our week's private worship. We cannot do without it. And if we do without it, we do so to our detriment. Think about it. Some of you don't agree. Some of you don't agree. Until, like a brother like Chris, who for quite some time now has struggled and praise God now for the kidney transplant, but even still now in recovering and recouping, he wants to be here and not at home. He wants to be here for all of us. He wants to be with you in the presence of the Lord. And secondly, I want you to see that it's a call to contemplate and to kneel. The church is also called the ecclesia. In the Greek, it's called the ecclesia. And we don't quite have an English word for it. We just say church. But what church means, and you'll hear Justin as as the worship leader very often call you church. Let's sing out, old church. Let's stand, church. This is for us, church. Well, he's not meaning just a a mere body of people, an institutional group. What it means are called out ones. That God has called us, He sought us, He's invited us, He's including us. And now He's calling us to contemplate and to kneel. Verse 3. He begins in verse 3 to tell us a number of features about the God who is our God. He begins to, to give us a theology lesson about God. Theology, like zoology, is the knowledge of animals. Theo, theos, means God. So theology is the knowledge of God. We don't simply bring our hearts and our feelings and our emotions, though that is necessary to worship. We bring our brains. We bring our minds. We bring our memories We bring the ability to analyze, to to consider, to calculate, to contemplate into worship. Too often, Presbyterians are accused of being all brain and no heart. Pentecostals are accused of being all heart and no brain. And that's not true, by the way. We're to be both. We encourage you to, whether it's on an iPad, an iPhone, or an actual physical Bible, we encourage you. We provide them for you. If you don't own one, take one. It's our gift to you. We encourage you 
to look and to read God's Word for yourself and to grow in knowledge. And there's a result. There's a result. Because as you grow in knowledge of God, then you begin to recognize His worth. That's the first part of the word for worship, is worship, worth-ship, worth-shape. And I'll make mention of that in just a moment. But we begin to calculate, we begin to look, we begin to grow in knowledge, and we begin to meditate, and that's like taking what we have now, the data we have, and beginning to chew on it. Now, meditation is a Christian discipline, but it's also a Christian art. And it's one that we want to encourage you to practice and employ in your everyday worship. Meditation is not emptying your mind. It's not the, what we think of as Eastern meditation, where I chant a mantra over and over and over trying to get to a place that I'm just totally empty, empty, empty. No, Christian med- meditation, as taught in the Scriptures, is contemplation. It's filling our mind. And then the response is a doxology. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. And we see that with the psalmist. And that, those three things comprise our worship. Our mind, our heart, as it begins to meditate. And then our response of a doxology. All those things comprise worship. Can we do this before I leave? A contemplation to show you how it works. Look at verse 3. It says, first of all, that the Lord is a great God. It tells us a number of things. He's a great God as opposed to a cruel God. He's a God, big G, above all other gods, those idols that we have raised, those, those other things that dictate to us or those things that promise us pleasure if we'll just serve them or give to them. He is a greater God than above those things. He's a great king above all gods. He is not only God of the universe, but he's a king. He knows his people. He looks at us not simply as his servants, but his sons and daughters. If he's a king, what are you? You're a foot soldier? You're a knight he sends off to risk your life? Are you a servant, maybe bringing the, the grapes and the cheese and the bread? Maybe you're the, the servant that cleans the, the bathrooms. No. This king calls you son and daughter, prince and princess, marvel of marvels. Christ promised that we would rule and reign on high with him. And he's our king. It says that, In verse 4 and 5, it talks about in his hand he has the depths of the earth, the mountains, and the seas, and with his hands he formed the dry land. In other words, whenever the Bible talks about the mountains, the top of the mountains, to the depths of the sea, think about that. The very bottom, the, the, the beneath, you know, the landscape on the bottom of the ocean, the bottom of that sand to as high as you can get on the mountain, that that highest speck of snow, all of it is His. He made it all. Jesus Christ indeed can 
walk out on the water, get into the boat, and can shush the water. Be still. And the water is still. Because God is the creator. You see what I'm doing? I'm evangelizing you. I'm citing the gospel. I'm telling you good news about God. And my own heart is beginning to to get excited and heated for worship. If he's the creator of all things, he is also my creator. It says here that in verse 6, he is the Lord. He's my maker. He knows me. He knows the things that make me afraid. He knows the things that make me ashamed. He knows the hurt. He knows the weakness. He knows the struggle. But he's also the creator, and he can recreate and is recreating me and you even now. Year by year by year, we are becoming more like Jesus because that's his goal. And he's using worship, the exercise of learning of him, meditating on him, responding in song to change us to be more like his son and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's taking us back to the original design. He's recreating us. And he's using worship to do that. And the response? The response is kneeling. And it's not, it's not a repentant surrender as much as it, I cannot stand on my feet. I am so in awe of you. It is like I am just so surrendered to you in worship. I am just, I am moved beyond even words in my adoration to you. Worship comes from the old English word worth and shape. And so worship is something that you value, something that you have put worth upon, and it begins to influence you. If it doesn't influence you, then it, you don't really value it very much. Or you don't have very much to do with it. And my question is, is there anything that you could fill in this blank with? If I have this, if I have money, if I have this possession, if I have this relationship with this person, if I have the, the well, if I am thought of highly by other people. If I have this, then I have worth. See, it's not only the things that we place value upon, but it's things that we draw personal value from that creates this worship effect. Oh, he worships old cars. Oh, he, he worships his yard. Oh, he worships. Well, it's on their mind. It's a study with them. They do give a form of physical worship and a response to it. But is it the greatest object of their worship? For the Christian, it's God. Or is it? What's your worship like? What's your worship like? Is it plateaued? Is it flat? Do you just feel like it's just 
oh, another Sunday and I'm just going through the motions again. Perhaps, perhaps we need to retrace our steps. Are you, are you reading about just who your God is? A great God, a great king, a creator, a maker, your God. Are you beginning to chew on that and meditate on that? How is that beginning to affect you? Think of it this way. There was a a lady, a gal, who had a dearly loved aunt. And her aunt had a necklace, a piece of jewelry that she always wore. And upon her death, she gave that to her niece. And her niece looked at this necklace and she thought, you know, this is not very attractive. It doesn't go with any of the, the outfits that I have. And so she just put it on the top of her dresser. Years went by. Oh, she'd move it from here to here as it got dusty. Eventually, it just got an old jewelry box and in the bottom at that. Years went by. Years went by. Finally, it crossed her mind. I'm going to assess my worth. She took her jewelry box to the jewelry appraiser. He took out each piece and laid it aside. He would put the the jeweler's eyepiece in and look over the the jewels or the the, the gold and the metal that she had. And he continued to push everything aside until he came to this necklace. And he got very excited. And then he asked to be excused. And he went back and, and, and he got a bigger, he took a microscope and he put it under it. And then he went and he got a book. And he saw the picture of this, and he, he read about it. And then he came out front, and he said, like the good evangelist, he gave her the gospel. He gave her some really good news. He said, little did you know, little did you know what you were in possession of. This is an extremely priceless piece of jewelry. It is valuable beyond any estimation. I would put no price on this. When she walked into the store or the jewelry appraiser, she was just just performing. It was just a piece of jewelry. But when she walked out with a fresh sense of the depth of its value, it shaped her life. She could say, I'm rich now, should I ever decide to sell it? If I put it around my neck, people will look, and those that truly know will say, wow, priceless. What a beauty. And she said, little did I know. Little did I know. You see how our worship can shape us, even to worship and also to grow to be the men and women that we're designed to be, full of confidence, full of assurance. Now, there's a word of caution that the psalmist gives, and it almost strikes us in verse 7 as a little unusual because he tells us that this God is our God and we are this God's people. In other words, it's like his and her towels, except it's his and his. He 
is mine. He is my God. And I am his. It's the language of the ancient promise called the covenant of God. Where to Abraham, he said, I will be your God and all of your people after you will be my people. That Israel, he could say, all of Israel are my people. This community are called out ones. This church, they are my chosen people. I have chosen them to be mine. And I will be their God. I will jealously love them, guard them, protect them, provide for them. For you see, they're my people. They're mine. They're my sons. They're my daughters. They're my sheep. And I love them tenderly as a shepherd. As Jesus taught in the Gospel of John, he said the shepherd, unlike the hireling, he knows the sheep by name. And he will lay down his life for them. They need never fear. And when they go astray, and they will, he will go after them because they're his. And he will not suffer them to be lost and forsaken and abandoned. But the psalmist points to a time in Exodus 17.7. And it, was a, it wasn't just a, a small occurrence. It was recorded throughout all of the years in the history of Israel. In 17.7 of Exodus, we read, And he called the name of that place Massa, which means testing or temptation, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people, misspelling, of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? At this point, they have been led out of Egypt. They have been set free after years and years and years of bondage and slavery and hard work and hardship and the death of their children. God said, those are my people. Let them go. Let them free. And through the plagues, God orchestrated their being let free and they're left now and now they're being taken through a wilderness journey of promise short duration to what's called the promised land. And he's saying, you're my people and I'm taking you to the promised land. But they got thirsty and hungry. It doesn't, doesn't say that any died of thirst. doesn't say that they were down to their last drop in the water bottle. But they were thirsty. And they challenged Moses. They quarreled with Moses. What kind of leader are you? What kind of church is this? Why is it so hard? We don't like this. We'd rather stay, have stayed in Egypt. Did you bring us out here because there are not enough graves in Egypt? We could have been thirsty there. We don't like being thirsty. What's God up to anyway? Make us some water. And Moses encouraged them, don't test the Lord. The Lord has not failed to provide for you. Take this as a test that you will trust, you will obey, you will have faith. Much like when we face hardships and trials and struggles, 
what's your thought of God? God, you owe me a better life than this. If I'm your people, I don't want to be thirsty. I don't want to have cancer. I don't want a broken relationship. I don't want an addiction. I don't want this. Stop it. Or just let me go back. Or is it, God, I'm your son and daughter. And I don't know why I'm thirsty. But I'm going to trust you. And if I die here on the side of a mountain because of my thirst, then I trust. And that is for your glory and for my good. But there are no instances of never dying of thirst. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, and I don't have a slide of that, a very interesting thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says this. They drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The spiritual drink that they had was Christ. Now, they didn't know Christ at that point, but they were learning about God. And the spiritual drink was to trust God. To trust God to not let them who he had led them out at the price of blood. He had led them out of Egypt that he would not abandon them here and now. Because they are his. So this is a a word of caution. It is a word of caution to us. Because our worship is never more challenged. Our worship is never more challenged than when we face trials and suffering. Can I worship God when I feel that thirst? That thirst for the relationship to go differently, that thirst for the job to go differently, the thirst for the health to go differently. Can I trust and say, this is not going to stop me from worshiping God. He's still a great God. He's still a great king. He's still a creator. He's still my maker. He's still my shepherd, and I am still his. If you can do that, then you'll rest. You'll rest. You can come on Sunday morning. You can realize, I tell you this as your pastor, every man and woman in this place, in this community, in this church of Two Rivers, is facing a battle. There's a struggle. There's an issue. There's a fight. It may not be yours. It may not be the same. But God has not abandoned you. God has not abandoned us. What He's done is He's brought us together in His presence where we worship and we're able to strengthen one another even as He strengthens us with Himself And we're able to rest. The burden is no longer on my performance. The burden is no longer on me to be anxious, to go out and find drink, spiritual drink for myself. He's provided. All I have to do is to drink, is to trust Him. In Isaiah 
famous chapter 53 that describes the crucifixion of Jesus, verse 11 of Isaiah 53, we read these words. This is what was on the mind and the heart of Jesus as he was expiring on the cross. Out of the anguish of his soul, and the word for anguish is toil, burden. Out of the burden of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In the time that he was suffering on the cross, he was able to look through that and he saw something that made it all worth it. He saw something on the other side of his cross and affliction and death. He saw something on the other side that gave his soul rest, satisfaction. You know what he saw? Hebrews 12 tells us that the goal of all of his suffering, the prize, the one possession he didn't have in heaven, was you. What he saw on the other side of his suffering was an intimate relationship now that he had achieved that's now possible between you and God. He saw your rest. And what gives us rest is on the other side of those things that challenge us is to come into this place and to worship. And God calls us to that. He says, I want you to rest. I want you to enjoy me and know me as I am your God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you do something now that we're unable to do, that you will allow us in this bread and this cup to see you, to see a body, and to know things about that body, that it was a real body, and it felt pain. But it was a body that sought us out, came into our world. It was a body that didn't cringe from the cross, was not reluctant to die for us. It was a body that paid the price so that now you're able to see us as forgiven because of the work that Jesus accomplished. That we would see in this bread and this cup that body that living body of Jesus Christ, and that he would serve us from this table. and We would fellowship with him, and we would eat with him, and this would be our worship. And from this table, you will give us peace, strength, and rest. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.